Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Good morning, everyone. David Gura and Tom Keen, Bloomberg Surveillance. Mr. Gura off. Michael McKee in for Mr. Guru, which is a good and beautiful thing. Um, David Kotak this morning mentioned a New Jersey bond, and I got a lot of response, negative response about New Jersey. A good man to speak to on that. Peter Hayes of BlackRock. Peter, let me rip up the script here. And the, the tone of, of particularly New York, New Jersey, Connecticut listeners was hyper negative on the land of Chris Christie. Is New Jersey a good credit? Jersey has some structural problems, like some of the other states with big pension problems, and that's that's where they really revolve around. So this idea of pensions being able to pay the liabilities, it seems to be getting shorter and shorter. That uh, I think the day of reckoning, if if you will, uh, they have to be addressed. Some states have done better jobs, and the states you mentioned have not done as good a job. And New Jersey is certainly one of those, and that's reflected in market spreads. They've spread yeah. spread out dramatically wider. So I think the market sniffs that out. Now, will they default longer term? Unlikely. They're a state, they're a large economy, et cetera. But in the meantime, you could see some volatility in the name. Do do the name, the state, and let's not pick on New Jersey, there's X number of other states like that. Does mm-hmm. a shop like BlackRock avoid a given state, or can you be choosy versus a GO, general obligation, and revenue paper? Can you pick and choose, or do you just walk away from some of these beleaguered states? Uh, again, I think you have to believe in the long-term e- efficacy of a, of a state. Even Illinois, who had some pretty significant problems, has actually taken some steps over the last couple of months to address the pension problem. They're a long way from from home, but you know, in the meantime, yields went up dramatically with prices going down, and that's actually reversed now yeah. over the, over the last yeah. couple of months. So you can play it that way, but you're, I think your question around geos and revenues, that to us is, is the bigger one. A revenue bond, you can sort of identify yeah. a revenue stream to pay back the bond, and geos right. are taking a bit of a political risk. Well, the Michael McKee's taking a huge risk because he's got those triple D-rated ice rink bonds somewhere out by Sparta, New Jersey. What, what's your yield on that? It's it's like nine percent forple tax free, and you get New Jersey Devil tickets but, bonus. But is there sort of a uh, psychological put in, in play here uh, that? Uh, yeah, Illinois or some of these other states are in a lot of trouble, but really they won't default. They won't go bankrupt, and so why not take the yield? I think there's definitely that mentality in in the market, and it's a bit of a rating risk. You know, do you want to own the double D or the triple D name? You get paid and compensated for it if that's what you're uh, after, uh, or other investors aren't comfortable with that type of risk and they see a little bit more of a doomsday scenario. But states, states first of all, don't have the ability to declare bankruptcy. So if you think about a state defaulting, I mean, that's just not on anybody's radar screen. So I think it's a matter of are you willing to take the risk and see some volatility right. well, in, in your portfolio. But there's plenty of people who want the yield and willing to take the risk. Mike, I want you to ask the next question, but this is too important to pass up. Peter Hayes, to be clear, a 50 states, they can't do a Puerto Rico. They're different, right? That's right. Territory versus state. It's, it's, it's part of the Constitution. Now, uh, can most uh, portfolios, or at least, I mean, we, we'll talk 
BlackRock, uh, since we're talking to the man from BlackRock, but uh, can you hold triple Ds or things like that? I mean, do your rules even allow you to have something that, that is that close to uh, default rating? They do. Obviously, reflating ratings are designed to reflect default risk over the long term, the ability of an issuer to pay back their debt. But yes, we, we can. Most institutional investors can hold everything on the, the credit spectrum from high yield to high quality and everything on the yield curve. So it's just a matter of where do you own those type of credits? I think you have to own them in appropriate mandates where investors understand the risks. Let me switch from pension problems to hurricane problems. If you look at a place like Houston or you look at a place like Miami with the potential damage that we might see, is there a possibility, you know, do, do you get a ratings change and a possibility that you might see either default or delayed payment on some bonds because the revenue is just not there if the economy is so badly damaged? I, I think you know, that, that could be in very small instances with very small issuers, you could see an interruption of, of payments. We think they're very unlikely, and history tells us that. You go back and look at some of the bigger hurricanes that have impacted the, the Southwest, Louisiana, et cetera, and you do see a bit of a downturn in, in economic activity for the short term, which obviously impacts revenues. But you don't see a big change in the market value of the bonds. You don't see a big change in ratings. If it's a single standalone <clears throat> project, then right. for some reason, some catastrophic event um, damages the property to the extent they can't continue to build it or build it out and can't collect revenues, then that might be a little bit differently, uh, different. But most of these revenue bonds have reserve right. funds they can draw on to pay debt service, and we, we don't see a, a big impact to bonds. That's what history has told us. Where are we positioning now on the relative yield and total return of a single, double, triple tax-free state portfolio at BlackRock? versus buying a national portfolio. That's always been a difficult concept for the public. Explain where we are now. Should I buy triple tax-free whatever state, or should I buy a broader national portfolio? It depends on your state. If you're in a state like California and New York, where the state income tax, local income tax rates are, are very high, then the opportunity cost of going out of state are pretty high. You can also diversify your portfolio in those states. There's a lot of different issuers that you can mitigate the risk and fully diversify a portfolio into GOs, or particularly into revenue bonds, getting back to your earlier question. But when you get down the spectrum a little bit into lower marginal tax brackets and you get into states like New Jersey, getting back to that, it's a little harder to fully diversify a portfolio yeah. and the opportunity cost of going national. So we advise some degree of diversification into national in some of those right. other states. Back to Mike McKee. I don't know, Mike, if you've seen Greg Villiers note today. He devotes it entirely yeah. to, to Irma, Harvey, and fiscal policy. Um, I, I guess, Peter, is a question off of Villiers' note is if we go to 4 or 5% deficit to GDP, does that mean a lot more issuance of municipal bond paper? It could. I mean, you, you might even see more issuance in the near term around Hurricane Harvey, and then depending on how it happens with Hurricane uh, Irma. But clearly, if you get more deficits, that's typically what we see is we see borrowing begins to ramp up. In the last couple of years, I would say probably the last seven or eight years, we've actually seen less borrowing, less borrowing than they really should, given how low rates are. But the fact that revenues are up, they've borrowed a bit less. So the, the, the inverse would hold true. When you uh, look at the overall um, muni market these days, how would you 
describe it as uh, as, as calm? I mean, it seems to Good be question. A, a, a calm portion of the market while everybody else is trying to figure out where we go from here. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a really interesting question, and, and it gets back a little bit to what Tom was touching on as, as well as the returns this year. It's kind of income versus price, and if you look at the breakdown so far of returns, it's almost 50-50. You get a little bit more from income, a little less from price, but you get about 45% of the returns this year are from price, and nobody was really expecting that. Rates have, have gone lower, and as a result, people have gotten more comfortable taking duration. You see a lot of money moving into long-duration Funds, a lot of money moving into high yield. People want more income when, when yields are low. And I would say, yeah, the technical backdrop, we have very good demand. Issuance remains, I, I would say, on the low side. We're off on a year-over-year basis, 15%. So that dynamic does have the market, I don't want to say complacent, but certainly at least in a pretty good spot right. near term. And in the meantime, treasury rates continue to move lower. We had a low of, I yeah. think, 206 yesterday on the 10-year. Yeah, 207 right now, and that's a lower yield in the last 20 minutes. Peter Hayes of BlackRock driving the full faith in credit yield lower. We're going to come back with Peter Hayes. Lots to talk about, about taking advantage of tax-free bonds. As I know Mike's got a lot of themes to talk about, Peter Hayes. Just quickly here, the mechanics of a portfolio. Can you be too diversified in a municipal bond portfolio? I guess it depends what your what your goals are. If they're total return, if they're income, I, I think our investment philosophy is the more diversification, the better. Take advantage of the, the you know the idiosyncratic nature of the market. That's how we find a lot of value finding that A-rated hospital in the Midwest where we like the financials. So we think there's a huge benefit in diversification, and then sometimes you can get these one-off events that. Uh, can have a big impact in your portfolio if you're not diversified. So we, we prefer diversification over not being diversified. You sort of went uh, where I wanted to go there when you mentioned the hospital uh, thing. I'm wondering yes, how uh, the whole Obamacare uh, thing, uh, I don't know how to describe it otherwise, uh, <laughs> is uh, affects uh, what you might want to invest in. I note that um, the trend in hospitals has been to uh, you know, uh, to to conglomerate and agglomerate, mm-hmm. whatever the word you want is. You know, to roll up into I mean, one big hospital. You said it exactly. Yeah. That's the way the roll up. So I'm just wondering, you know, if if healthcare becomes something uh, that is one way or the other more interesting. Yeah, that, that's been the, the play. Really, has been around consolidation, and we just saw in uh, we just saw in, in New Jersey a merger announced yesterday between uh, some health systems. And going into these larger systems is the, the way that a lot of these hospitals are actually mitigating some of their risk. You know, these standalones that have a big dependence on Medicare and Medicaid obviously become very vulnerable to changes in what happens with with ACA or not happens with ACA. And a a lot of it isn't only on the hospital level, it's also on the state level. So, for instance, for a state, they either opted in or opted out of ACA, depending on what they chose to do. And what happens with ultimately with the health care law, that could mean that millions of uninsured go back on their, their roles, and the question becomes, what do they do with them? It usually puts additional budget pressure on the state. So there's sort of a double-pronged impact, potentially. You have to think about the impact to the hospital and health care sector, and you have oh. to think about the impact of the states as well. How do you get that knowledge? I mean, if there's UTX, Rockwell, Collins... There's different government stuff and everybody does a lot of pre-work. But in the the Peter Hayes game of municipal bonds, 
How are you knowledgeable on a given hospital here in a given hospital 40 miles away? It's the strength of our credit research staff, to be honest. We have a terrific uh, team of analysts uh, that diversified by sector. So we have uh, the healthcare analyst who's been doing it 20 plus years. And, and they you know, know like 400 focus. hospitals. Like, like that healthcare analyst has tattooed to their brain the working knowledge of how many hospitals? Uh, well, I would say the, the good working knowledge of 100 plus hospitals. Okay. And we have a staff, you know, that, that works underneath them and helps yeah. give a lot of the financials yeah. and information so she can disseminate and make a informed decision. But we do that for each of our sectors, whether it be airports or tow roads or hospitals or higher ed universities, et cetera. And, uh, you know, that's one of the strengths of our uh, franchise. Michael, should we ask about LaGuardia? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, I've flown through there a lot lately. You Not have. a rainy day. We're down like uh, to a fifth world airport there <laughs> right now while it's under construction. No, I want to ask with up, about with upside. Though, with upside, we're hoping so. Before Tom and I, before we die, Mr. Hayes is hoping so. Yeah. But I want to ask uh, before we let you go about uh, the impact of tax reform. You don't hear anything about um, changing the uh, tax status of municipals for the most part. But I guess when you open the door. Anything can happen. How concerned are you that this could impact one way or another your uh, your portfolios? It's been radio silence. I'm just going to go back a little bit post-election. You think about the, the reaction of the market. I mean, you sold off quite a bit, a lot of outflows, because people thought, oh, you have a one-party control. There's going to be tax reform, and munis could be impacted. Fast forward to now, and that seems very, very unlikely. I mean, we'll leave aside tax reform or tax cuts in that discussion for now. But when you think about the need to do infrastructure, and we've heard um, we've heard the Secretary of Treasury uh, and others, uh, even the President himself, talk about the need to push infrastructure to the states and cities. They actually, in some respects, do it more efficiently than the federal government. And what's the best place to do that? The municipal bond market. So we feel very, very strongly that tax exemption of municipals will not be harm should there be any type of tax reform. Oh, Peter Hayes, thank you so much with BlackRock. Just a nice briefing there on uh, muni bonds. You know him from Kellogg's. You know him as Secretary of Commerce. But what you don't know, and I love how Wikipedia puts this, Secretary Gutierrez, quote, he and his family acquired United States citizenship. Could you acquire United States citizenship today, given the move from Cuba to Mexico to the United States? Could you get a could you become a U.S. citizen today, Secretary Gutierrez? Uh, Well, today, actually, with the new law, I I suppose the right word should have been obtained. But with the new uh, the elimination of wet foot, dry foot, Refugees from Cuba don't obtain uh, instant uh, rights to stay in the U.S. So, yeah. no, I probably couldn't have come over. I mean, it, it, boy, uh, if things say your thoughts. You and I had an historic interview X number of years ago when Ted Kennedy and Orrin Hatch tried to do uh, it, tried to do something on immigration. Have we learned anything since Kennedy Hatch? Boy, we you know we've learned that there's nothing easy about this. That it is so easy to kill this bill. It is so uh, it is so easy to make it more complex. Uh, it is you know the 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 bill we had in 2006 was 700 pages long, 
And I was just hearing someone yesterday saying, look, you, you need a couple of sentences to put the DACA into law. No, da- DACA will probably turn into, you know, a long document. So it is a complex process. I think we've learned a lot. I think one of the things we have learned is to focus, uh, not try to get everything done all at once. And that's why I'm optimistic about this process, that immigration reform will be focused on one thing, and that's the DREAM Act. Well, push back against the argument that the administration makes that uh, the United States is a nation of laws and you cannot make policy based on executive orders. You need Congress to, to pass the law. And certainly the, the right-wing Republican argument that the dreamers are breaking the law and letting them stay is amnesty. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a very, very unfortunate point of view. Uh, you know, it's sort of time to step back and and look at the, the, the big picture. The reason we have so many undocumented people in the country is that our laws don't serve the economy. So uh, our economy, our laws don't provide a legal way to bring in the workers we need to grow our businesses. So you have a couple of choices. Go out of business or hire someone undocumented. Uh, and that's very unfortunate that we've put businesses in those in those positions. There are some, some businesses that are actually farms that have gone to Mexico and R&D centers that have gone to Canada. And that, that's the one thing that is, that's the one insight that I don't hear enough of. The problem with our immigration system is our laws. And until we fix them, until Congress does its job, we're going to continue to have this problem, no matter how tall so, and beautiful the wall is. Is it is the president, in a way, doing the right thing, demanding a vote from Congress? Well, you know, it's an interesting question, because I, I think this is sort of the second best thing. Uh, and, and maybe this is the way to codify the, the DREAM Act into law and uh, and do it the right way. So, actually, the president has given this six months of life. Um, and I think I, I think Congress can do it. Uh, you've got people like Lindsey Graham who are behind it, Paul Ryan. There are people who want this done. Seventy percent of the American well, people want this done. Carl, it's good to hear us. If I go up to Battle Creek, Michigan, an important state in the election, the tally was Mr. Trump, 31,000, Secretary Clinton, 24,000. Uh, there's a lot of supporters of this president worried about the bad Carlos Gutierrez instead of the good Carlos Gutierrez that we all know. What do you say to the people of Battle Creek who genuinely feel there is a changed America and they don't like it? Yeah, you know, and I, I on one hand, I understand that, and uh, I, I think we need to understand each other's positions, but we have to realize that 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 sense that people are coming in and they're changing the look of the country and they're going to change our culture and they're going to change our values. We've been talking about that uh, for for centuries. And with each uh, new immigrant group, we get more and more nervous. We've had, in 1924, we cut off immigration because it was, you know, we were getting to, or at least we reduced it dramatically. So what we're going through today, we've gone through before the one thing we have learned is that immigrants become Americans. America changes immigrants. It's not the opposite. That's why we're so great at this, and that's why we're the greatest country in the world. 
people come here and they become Americans. We shouldn't worry about that. We've had enough experience with it. What would you, uh, how, how would you want Congress to proceed? Should they just pass a law saying the 800,000 people who are here can stay, we'll give them work permits and basically codify the executive order? Or do we need a much broader reform of immigration laws? Well, eventually we do. Eventually we do need a much broad, broader reform. Um, for right now, I would say focus on the DREAM Act because the, the, the broader comprehensive reform is so complex, and I, I'm not sure that can be done in six months. But uh, the DREAM Act, just that one piece of it, I think can be done. So mm-hmm. I, I would urge them to focus on the DREAM Act. But then eventually we've got to get to broader reform. If not, we're going to continue having illegal workers or we're going to have a declining economy. Let's uh, do one question in business, if we could, Secretary Gutierrez. And this is the idea of Amazon with breaking news. They will establish in Staten Island, New York, their first New York fulfillment center, 2,250, quote, new comma, full-time jobs for employees will be uh, created. I guess Amazon's creative destruction. I guess I can buy cornflakes through Amazon. Where are we now in bricks and mortar America? Where are we in retail or conventional cereal eating America? It's all changing, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, retailing is going through a major transformation. Um, You know, speaking of Battle Creek, uh, I was hearing about the mall in Battle Creek. It's just a, a very different place. Uh, you know, for people that, who are in the packaged goods industry who are selling through grocery stores, uh, this really comes down to the importance of the brand. Because I, I would assume that Whole Foods will be selling uh, Whole Foods cereal. Um, and then it comes down to brand versus brand. So if anything, brands are more, uh, are more important than ever. But you do have a totally new distribution um, setup, and companies are going to have to adjust to that. It, there's, there's no way around it. And I think every packaged food company in the country is looking at ways of mm. uh, digitizing their distribution and getting, getting in line with the, where yeah. the trends are going. Now we have to go over cornflakes. Carlos Gutierrez, thank you so much, particularly for your continued comments uh, to us on America and immigration. He's a former Secretary of Commerce of the United States. Always good, Michael, to speak to Mr. Gutierrez. He clears the air. This is a joy. Kathy Fisher has had a storied career in Wall Street, including that agony of jobs doing security analysis on banks. She did that at Morgan Stanley a few years ago. That aged you, didn't it? Very doing bank, you, you, every every 90 days is a, I mean, Brad Hintz at Bernstein knows that every 90 days is a, a miracle to see if you can even get close to right. Kathy, put the microphone somewhat nearer you. It's your first time on radio, I know. Um, I want to rip up the script here first. I want to talk about Bates College before Michael McKee dives into uh, your work (laughs) at Alliance Bernstein. You are Bates. You bleed Bates. How are the little Ivies doing? It's back to school. Everybody listening to this with kids that are junior, seniors in high school nationwide would kill to get into Bowdoin, Colby, Amherst, Middlebury, Swarthmore, Wesleyan, Williams, and Bates. How is Bates surviving as that oddest of non-STEM things, a liberal arts college? 
You know, you've probably read there's a lot of debate about this topic, yeah. and more and more people are beginning to wonder if liberal arts colleges can survive in this environment, but many are also positing that liberal arts education actually creates the flexibility that will be needed for jobs in the future, i.e. not everyone can be an engineer, and as the world continues to change, the, the tools that people learn mm -hmm. in liberal arts education actually position them well for fluidity in the job market in the decades to come. How's Bates doing? I mean, they're going to survive. I mean, there's a lot of colleges yeah, shutting yeah. down. A lot, of the, um, a lot of the smaller colleges that have been more local uh, have been shutting down. You're exactly right. But the national small liberal arts colleges mm -hmm. continue to see record applications because the quality of the, of the education is indeed so good. Mm -hmm. And let's face it, they are becoming more aware of the need to provide uh, job direction, shall we say. So I think there's more and more of a focus driven by parental yeah. demand to have okay. a focus on what kids right. can do with their education when they come out. Mike, Mike, don't let Kathy know that someone from Bowdoin is on our team. <laughs> don't let her know that. Please. Well, they're all excellent places and the same themes apply Just to all. Just up the road. Yes. Uh, can you get a job as a liberal arts major uh from Bates or Bowdoin uh, on Wall Street these days. Yeah, you know, I, I, actually, yes. Um, the, the 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 demand for those uh, skills is still there. Now, they may not be, obviously, they're not for the quant jobs, but for kids wanting to come in and get a sort of trainee position, absolutely, we're still looking for those backgrounds. Okay, off the script here. Let's get back to it uh, with Alliance Bernstein and the, the work there on value for years. It's not that value has been a value trap, but it's been a value underperformer. When does value see its day? Yeah, value has underperformed significantly in the past several years. It's not surprising in that investors have been looking for growth in what seems to be a slow growth environment, and therefore growth stocks have really outperformed dramatically to the point where you know, there's no question it looks like a, a relatively expensive asset class at this point. Um, lots of good companies. We still like a lot of them. But value has been quite mysterious. Although if you step back, we would argue perhaps not so mysterious because think of what has happened in recent years. There's so much uncertainty about the future for so many industries because of disruption, whether it's retailing, whether it's banking, you name it. There's lots of questions about what the new normal will look like. And value investing requires that you can look at today's controversies and get a sense of how the company gets from today's challenges to a future that's more normal and therefore earnings improve. With that uncertainty we have today about what the future looks like, it's harder for investors to make that leap of faith and believe that reversion to the mean will occur the way it has in the past. Well, we're going to see uh, earnings continue to provide the lift to the market that they have, or has it, started, has it sort of been priced in at this point? Yeah, great question. Earnings, as you know, have been quite robust in the past several quarters, um, and, and we expect that momentum to taper off because some of it was a lift off of the depressed energy prices in 14 and 15. But what, what I think related to value stocks, what's interesting is if you start to see some of the cheap value companies have better than expected earnings, of course, that will be a catalyst for them. It will be very idiosyncratic, though. Has the Fed raising rates 
uh, and obviously um, changing the discount rate made a real impact in how you evaluate stocks, or it's still so little that it, it doesn't matter over the long run. At this stage, as you know, the increases in rates have been quite modest, and therefore it has not made a big impact. And in fact, it, we, we're, what we're dealing with now is the fact that long rates have actually gone down since year end, which is not what anyone would have expected. Well, I look at that 2.0699 as well. David Kotak was in earlier, and his arch theme as someone who's enjoyed this bull market, as I'm sure you have, is the idea of lower for longer. What does that mean away from your value place? What does it mean for a growthiness story like Amazon? What does lower for longer mean for the high flyers? Lower for longer is indeed something that catches the attention of, of all of us because, again, I, who, who would have guessed five years ago where rates would be today that they're still this ago. low, right? Yeah. And and low around the globe. Um, and, and remember, the we are a global economy, and, um, and it's unlikely that the ECB will move until the Fed moves, and so there's all kinds of connections here that we have to think about. But it, if you step back and say if you have a growing global economy, which we do, if you have very low inflation, which we do, and very low interest rates, which we do, you couldn't ask for a better environment for stocks of all sorts. And it does indeed encourage the growthier stocks when people are looking for something that has that growth uh, momentum to it in a relatively mm-hmm. slow growth environment. What Has anybody at this point... Um does anyone stand out? Obviously, you're looking at growth versus value, but within growth, does any size uh, of company stand out at this point? The, the big caps and the Dow get all the publicity, but what are we seeing below them? Well, again, I would argue it's it's company by company. Uh, for example, we do own Facebook. We don't own Amazon. Um, Why is that? And you know, um, you know, we we while the Amazon story is well understood, we prefer companies where we can really get a sense of where the earnings are going over time. And as we all know, Amazon is, a, is far away from that. Um, the valuations, of course, are quite high for Amazon, and we think there's other mm. companies that give a much more clear connection between the valuation mm. and the future earnings potential. If the Fed moves very quickly here, and we'll come back, if the Fed makes strategic moves, how will the market price that? Will it be priced in a two-minute space, and we'll get so-called jump conditions, or can they actually manage the glide path? The expectations for the Fed really cluster around a consensus that I think the Fed is very aware of and therefore trying to manage to those mm-hmm. expectations. The last hike we had was kind of a non-event, and I think uh, you're ex- we're expecting very significant signaling of what the Fed well. expects to do. So we wouldn't expect too much jitteriness unless something is much more rapid than expected or or, or larger than expected. Okay. There we are. Kathy Fisher with us with Alliance Bernstein. And what I would say, folks, is there's two groups of strategists, those that strategize and those that worked in the trenches. I think of Tobias Lefkovich at Citigroup, a guy named Gabelli. And there's just something about doing gut buy-hold sell security research that makes you different. One S. Krawchuk a few years ago at Bernstein, uh, she'll admit to it every once in a while that she was an analyst. And so were you. You were a bank analyst. Banking today, will we see a consolidation in U.S. banking? 
Well, first of all, I was a bank analyst many, many decades ago, but it is a fascinating This is sector. Albert Gallatin and, you know, stop it. Continue. It was a, it's, it's a fascinating sector. As you know, um, there are prohi- prohibitions against the larger banks getting much larger. There's a deposit cap on what you can have uh, in terms of the ownership of deposits around the country. We do think there will be consolidation on the small end. We think that small banks will buy even smaller banks. Um, but that's way down in the microcap space. Um, at the larger end of the market, it's a, it's, it is a very interesting time because banks are really figuring out how to adapt to a very different world where technology plays a bigger role in what their clients want. As you know, there's uh, everybody wants apps. They want you know, immediate access to their banking services. And that's increasing costs for banks as they start to change that. But eventually it will become... Why is that an increase? How can digital be an increasing cost? All they got to do is start closing down the five branches on every corner. Well, first you've got to get it right. For eventually, we agree with you, we, we, there will be an interesting time when bank branches start to close and what that does for real estate in places like New York City will be interesting to see. But in the interim, you've, you're sort of doing both, right? You're building your techno- mm-hmm. technological platform while you still have the human touch. There will be a crossover point where that starts to change. But it does create interesting uh, Challenges for banks as, as they're dealing with both both low interest rates and the need to upgrade their technological interface with their clients. Do you buy banks at this point? Selectively. Uh, it's um, we, we actually like some of the payments companies better, some of the other financial kinds of companies. But yes, indeed, we own some banks and um, they are cheap. Uh, unfortunately, they keep getting battered by the, uh, the the relatively flat yield curve and, the, and rates not rising to the extent that the market has been waiting for. Well, do you want to buy the big banks or the little banks because of the merger possibilities? Well, I will say we have one fund that actually buys very small banks because of their merger opportunities. But in our uh, large cap portfolios, we have uh, some of the large banks as well. And you didn't mention the regionals. To me, the interesting you know story, folks, we're guilty of this. I only talk about six banks it seems, and you know, I get chastised for that as I should be. The regionals are a huge story, aren't they? I mean, they just, I mean, it's almost like an 80s redux we're waiting for. Well, you know, they, they, they are and they aren't, in that I would argue these same themes are hitting them that, you know, t- doing the technological investment. Making sure you're doing what your clients want is, is of great interest because, remember, young people don't love banks. They need banking services. But if you talk to anyone who's 25, they're doing all their payments on Venmo. And I think there's a need to figure out how to draw those millennials into a banking relationship where the bank really does you know, control Mike, the direction. Do you notice how the youngster walks in the room and she talks up Venmo? I have no <laughs> clue what Venmo is. Yeah, to me, it's Isn't an opportunity for you to have, have your financial information stolen by hackers. But yeah. Venmo. Uh, it's a new world. I read one survey that said that uh, millennials would um, put going to a bank one notch below going to the dentist. <laughs> well, you don't have to get a shot when you go to the bank. Well, that's <laughs> to a good security. Yeah. What about health care then? If the dentist is, is part of the Affordable Care Act and the follow-on here, is there a new opportunity in health care? Health care is a very uh, interesting sec- uh, industry group with lots of subsectors. Yeah. So we would argue yeah. that hospitals are actually very attractive because of um, both demographics and uh, increased demand no matter what happens with changes to Obamacare. We would also argue that biotech, for very different reasons, is is in some cases attractive because there are, there is innovation. Um, there is, uh, you might have seen the FDA approved um, a drug, for, a therapy for Novartis that uses individual cells to attack cancer and those kinds of therapies. How do you pick out traction. one that 
is going to maintain its value because its treatment actually yeah. works. Everybody rushes in in the stage two tests, but in, you mm-hmm. know we don't have a long run track record. Yeah, it it is it is tough, and that's why um, we you know you can't make big bets on one company, but rather I think look at the history and the management acumen and in, in having a good track record over time, and recognizing that uh, there will be some volatility in these names. Uh, speaking of um, things that come out of Washington, uh, and you were talking about the healthcare, um, there was a big push to buy into stocks that might be affected by infrastructure spending, which is sort of dropped off the radar. Did you buy any of those, and are you sorry, or do you think it'll come around again? Uh, most of the themes that were popular at the end of 2016 post-Trump election, of course, have dissipated this year as the likelihood of getting things passed has waned. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody likes infrastructure and concept, but nobody really knows what it means. And the momentum for that has really yeah. uh, come down a lot. What do you see in use of cash? I mean, there's a great theme here. The driving force has been rising dividends, share buybacks, et cetera. We all love that at 17000 or 15000 Can we love use of cash at 22000 You know, one thing that's been visible is that stocks doing buybacks are not rewarded the way they used to be. Why is that? Uh, Because I think investors recognize they'd like to see companies doing something with the cash that leads to greater profits for the company down the road as opposed to just giving There isn't a correlation of financial engineering to the idea of share buybacks. Yeah, I mean, financial engineering was, was very popular for quite some time, but I think there's a sense now that especially companies who might be levering up too much to do it, mm-hmm. maybe have hit the end of the road on that. Well, you see UTXCOL with 14 times EBITDA, which is a ginormous number. Anybody, including UTX, uh, would say that. Is that this time? Is that another symbol of a silly season to come? Well, you know, one thing that we have been watching is the gradual increase in net debt to EBITDA across U.S. companies, mm-hmm. some sectors more than others. Um, you're, you're not seeing that overseas. We're seeing it here. It does indeed make us um, mm-hmm. pay more attention to debt burden. But it's sort of, yeah. when you think about it, with low rates for so many years, perhaps not surprising yeah. that companies have done this. Mike, the D word slips in here. Instead of accretive, all of a sudden we're starting to look at dilutive. It's dilutive. <laughs> we're dilutive. We're, we're getting that way. It's not ice cubes. <laughs> uh, the, the cliche question, but uh, one I feel compelled to ask, is um, does the good, do the good times continue or have we peaked now? We seem to be on this sort of fulcrum point where people are trying to decide whether, okay, it's time for a correction and we're just waiting for the trigger. Uh, And the other side says we keep having triggers and they don't knock us down, so let's just keep uh, dancing in Chuck Prince's words. That's the question of the hour because, um, as you know, this is the we're, we're working on one of the longest economic and stock market recoveries in the U.S. since the Great Crisis. And investors understandably are looking for a pullback to occur since uh, numbers and impl- the, you know, the date history implies were due. But um, when we look around the globe, uh, mm-hmm. we see this you know synchronous, modest recovery that continues. Uh, and, you know, there's actually a bit of a reacceleration re- re- in earnings, as we've seen in recent quarters. So while we're looking very carefully for some significant imbalances and things to worry about, we simply don't right. see them. It will happen at some point, but we simply don't see no. the imbalances that at this point would cause a pullback of size. Any, yeah. any pullback can happen at any time, but mo- modest should be expected as opposed to dramatic. Kathy Fisher, thanks so much with Alliance Bernstein. and. Uh, wealth and uh, equity strategy as well, really across all asset classes. 
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.